hear the word of the Lord. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. My name is Travis, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, thank you, Kristen, for um, reading the word. And I want to thank Pastor Jeremy Quillo. He went ahead and moved all the objects up here so that I don't rebaptize myself and fall over. And so thank you. And uh, thank you, for Pastor Jonah, for introducing the series. Book of Esther. Um, it's, uh, it's a... Uh, it's an unbelievable book in a lot of ways, and partly it's an unbelievable book um, because it's, it's one of those that you get going through it and you're like, this is in the Bible, you know? Uh, and so, Lord willing, Lord willing, we'll get through it. Um, uh, are the microphonic demons cast out yet? Are we good to go? All right. Um, my name is Travis. I used to work at FedEx, not UPS. That's a long story. People always assumed I worked at UPS, and what would happen is, I wasn't planning on saying this, but I'm going to now. I'm too deep into it. But I, I would originally correct them. I'm like, I actually work at FedEx, the one over Jeffersonville. And they're like, are you sure? I thought you worked at UPS. And I'm like, no, I, no, I, I work at, yeah, as far as I know, I work at FedEx, you know. And, and then it would happen again. There's this one gentleman in particular who was like, hey, you know, how's UPS? I'm like, oh, I work at FedEx. You work at FedEx? I thought you worked at UPS. And it was just like Groundhog Day, you know, all the time. And eventually, uh, eventually, I just, I didn't lie. I'm looking at Pastor Rob, so it's like, I'm going to get, I'm going to get rebuked for being deceptive. I didn't lie to him, but eventually he'd be like, hey, you know, how's UPS? And I'd be like, oh, I don't know. Who can keep up with that place, you know? <laughs> so big, planes coming in. I would just, and he's like, I know, yeah, you know, we kind of talk about UPS. <laughs> I was like, whatever. I mean, you know, it's like, I can't keep on going through this weird existential crisis I have all the time where I'm like, I think I work at FedEx. I mean, my wife's the one who cashes the checks. Maybe, you know, may, maybe there's something going on behind the scenes. I don't know. But anyway, I worked at FedEx, not UPS. And at FedEx, at least whenever I was there, um, <laughs> I, I worked a variety of positions. It, at least at the time I was there, I don't know that this is reflective on the company. Maybe it is. They, they didn't require that you complete a drug test except for one position. And the position was you had to be the guy who backed in the semi-trailers to, to, to have them unloaded. They call that position the switcher. And the guy who was the switcher, I think since... Noah came off of the ark. I mean, he'd been there forever. It was like the one guy who they trusted to do a drug test and back up large semi-trailers full of thousands of pounds of cardboard and Amazon fulfillment packages. Um, he quit, and then they didn't know what to do because they didn't have a backup plan. And so then there was me. I was like the one guy who worked at Bible college, or who went to a Bible college, right? And so it was kind of like, well, you know, if the if the Bible college student, you know, is sniffing that cocaine, then we've got real problems on our hands. 
more so than, you know, we can't fulfill this position. So, uh, and they were like, you know, you willing to do this? And I'm like, yeah, sure. I love Jesus. I can't say no, you know. And um, so I did it, took the drug test and passed. And then um, just so, just let, let the reader understand. So just so everybody knows. And, and so I, I would back in semi-trailers to the glory of God. And, and it was, it was, it was fine until it was not. One time, anyway, I'm going to stop. I, one time I bounced my head off of a semi-trailer and they, my wife was, you know, panicking because we were like brand new married and we made like, you know, $300 a week or whatever, unless the UPS was paying us extra, I don't know. But, um, and so, so anyway, I don't know what that has to do with my sermon, but um, so I, well, so I could back in semi-trailers and then I could sort packages. That was the other thing. I was good in the unload, okay? So I could, I could back in the semi, get there and unload the finely crafted uh, semi-trailer because it doesn't take any brains to, to, I mean, it does take brains. You know what I mean? It's like somebody's probably a, an unloader here and now they're going to be offended. But it doesn't, like you, you have to recruit a lot of muscle fibers to like lift heavy things. But you don't generally have to think much other than like, where's the conveyor belt, okay? And so, so I was able to do that, but here's the thing that I was not able to do when I was at FedEx, not UPS, um, was I wasn't good at loading the trucks, okay? I don't know why that is, um, if it, you know, if I like, didn't play enough Tetris or something like that, you know what I mean? I had the hardest time like getting the packages, you wouldn't think it was that hard, but I had a hard time getting the packages and then arranging them in a way that they didn't, they didn't just eventually topple over, you know what I mean? And it's a, a rather chaotic and epic sight whenever, you know, a thousand pounds of cardboard and Amazon fulfillment packages come crashing down and, you know, there's dust and carcinogens and everything else going up in the air. And so, and I, I just disliked doing it for a lot of reasons. I always had a hard time, like, placing the packages where they were supposed to go. They had these weird charts that were supposed to be helpful on where, you know, so it's like, this zip code goes in this place and this zip code goes in that place or whatever. And you'd think that would be simple, but it, it wasn't for me at least. And so, and I disliked it. The drivers, they had really hard jobs. You know what I mean? And like, it's, it's, you know, it's oftentimes it's hot, it's heavy work, it's demanding. And so, but they all had their kind of little idiosyncrasies. I think that's how you say that word. I have a hard time with that word too. A hard time with a lot of things this morning. It's staying on track, but because you know, sometimes they knew what was going on, and so maybe maybe they were you know maybe they were stopping at point A first instead of point B or whatever. And so so what would happen is is I I eventually convinced um, the powers that be to you know let me take my life in my own hands and back in semi trailers and and not just get uh, drivers angry at me all the time because I didn't know what I was doing. The one thing that I learned out of being a loader or a very, uh, uh, a failure of a loader was I learned that, well, when you're stacking boxes, you gotta have, you gotta have a really secure base at the bottom. Because if you don't have a very secure base at the bottom, eventually, that whole structure is going to come toppling over at some point in time. Because you've got to think, those guys are driving, driving large machines. They're stopping. They're starting. There's just constant stress, and there's constant pressure that are being placed on the way you've stacked things. And so, eventually, in the course of time, 
if you don't stack it and your foundation isn't steady and secure, then it's going to come toppling over. There's something very much about that, like that in life. The necessity, the necessity and the desire for what is steady, for what is secure, for having a foundation and a base that is wide and is able to deal with the starts and the stops in life. So let's think about it with regards to our life. We'll, we'll start very wide. Let's think nationally. So all kinds of things. I don't know uh, if you feel this way, but is, it's easy to, get sh- to feel shaky about what's going on because you, you, you know that something's going on and it's, it seems chaotic or it's problematic or it's providing stress, um, but you don't necessarily know what specifically is going on. So think of it politically. You, you have what appears to be factions that are developing more and more in our political systems to where maybe you have people who are of the far right and they are what would be called protectionistic. So they're, they're concerned about themselves and they're concerned about the, um, the interests of America and the interests of their own groups to the point that they reject anybody who doesn't look like them or think like them or act like them. And at times, they're violent. That may be on the far political right. On the far political left, you have what seems to be growing factions of people. I mean, you can, you can see people who are showing up on university campuses, for instance, with signs that say free speech, and they're burning them. And they're saying all free speech is just hate speech because of their various political ideologies. And it's like, wow, what's, what's going on here? It, it seems shaky, but the question is, is, is it shaky because, because I just don't necessarily know what's going on? Or is it shaky for another reason? Because the reality is, is it seems like that something's going on, but it could be that just, well, we don't necessarily know what's going on. Let's get much more localized. Like, there's all kinds of events that have transpired in our local community in a very short amount of time that seem, that make life seem shaky. You know, you, you're, you're introduced to somebody and then they, they pass away tragically. You know, you have... Um, you have children who get diagnosed with cancer. You, you, maybe, maybe you're encountering um, family troubles or economic troubles. Maybe you're, have you ever been in a situation where you almost lost your job? Like, I've been in different situations where I almost lost my job, and there's nothing that's more unnerving, or there's nothing that makes the world feel as chaotic as knowing, uh, is not knowing how you're going to pay your next bill. And the world seems chaotic and stressful. And that makes having a secure base all the more important. Is it that these things are going on? It seems that way. Um, But how do we understand it? And sometimes you have to say, well, I don't know. Maybe I don't know what's going on and maybe I don't understand it correctly. But there is a God and he is at work even in the chaos, even in the mess, even in the most problematic of situations, the Bible declares and makes clear for us there is a God and he is in complete control. And that is the message of the entire Bible, but specifically in the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, we, we will encounter figures who are unlike other people in the Bible, 
The times seem chaotic and confusing, and yet Esther will show us that there is a God, He is present, He is good, and His plans will be fulfilled. And what we need to do, and this is the main point of the message, is what we need to do is embrace the limits of our own knowledge so that we can move forward with a steady faith. We need to embrace the limits of our own knowledge so that we can move forward with steady faith. There are three limits to our knowledge that we need to embrace according to um, Esther chapter 1 and chapter 2. First is we need to embrace the limits of our knowledge with respect to the motives of other people. So we're limited in, in our knowledge of the motives of other people. Second, we're limited in our knowledge... Uh, with, with regards to the godliness of other Christians. And then second, we're limited in our knowledge of the plans of God. So first, we're limited with respect to the motives of other people. Esther is a very fast-paced book. There's a lot of, there's a lot of events that take place. There's a lot of, of, of happenings that happen in this book. And what specifically is taking place in this book? Well, there's a lot of, of government-sponsored partying. So let's look here in verses 2 and 3. Um, at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all the nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, and the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. So here we have that the book opens up with this king, and he's saying, let's have a banquet. Now, for what reason? Why are they having a banquet? Was there a military victory? Was there a religious festival? Well, we don't know. But we know they're having a banquet. And then, verse 5. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. Okay? So he gives a first banquet to the, kind of the influential, powerful people, and then he gives a second banquet to just everybody. And specifically, um, what's the reason for it? Well, we don't really know. We know that he gives it, and you'll see as we continue in Verses 5 through 7, um, he will say, Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the others, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's, the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restriction, for the king instructed that all wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. <laughs> so, to be a good citizen was to to just drink as much wine as you wanted, right? And so you could just imagine some old boy showing up and being like, it's our civic duty, you know, let's keep on drinking or whatever. And it's like, well, what's, what's going on? Like, what's the reason for the banquets? We don't know. And then you have verse 9. The queen is not going to be outdone. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So the queen's not going to be outdone, and so she has a banquet for the women. Okay, sounds good. For what reason? 
Why? Don't really know. They're just doing it. Can they just party because they want to? I suppose. But what's the reason for it? Don't really know. And then what takes place is in verse 10. On the seventh day when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. When the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. The king became furious and burned with anger. So the king gets liquored up and then says he wants his wife to come so he can show her off. Now, to be drunk and pretentious is problematic. But, but like, wh- why, why would he want this done? I mean, I, it says that he wanted to show her off. But, like, what's his motive in this? And then Vashti hears this, so he sends his staff to go communicate this message, and she says, I'm not doing this. And then the king gets angry. Well, what's her reason for refusing? I mean, you can assume, like, obvious things. She has some respect for herself, but again, the passage doesn't tell us her reason for refusing. And so then verse 13 takes place. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times, (laughs) which is mildly entertaining. Like, since it was customary for him to speak to the lawyers about his relational problems, you see? It's like his wife tells him, no, he's got to go find a law professor. And so what do they tell him to do? Well, this is what they say. They say, in essence, this is the, this is the new Travis paraphrase, okay? That some of this is not in the Bible. But what they say is they say, look, you're, the queen said no, and this is really problematic. She says no, actually, you know, at some point after the banquet of the women. And they're saying, look, you know, essentially, if, if the queen, who's the most powerful woman in the world, says no to you, the most powerful man in the world, like, what, what chance do the rest of us have? And, th- and then what they say is, they say, all the women are going to start saying no. Like, she's going to set a precedent here. And then it says in verse, in verse uh, 16, or excuse me, verse 18, there will be no end of disrespect and discord. Like, you know, it, we're just going to have chaos and, you know what I mean? Like people are going to be chanting, you know, if it's good enough for V, it's good enough for me. No, 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 you know, it's just going to be madness. Maybe they wouldn't say. That's why I said it's the new Travis paraphrase or whatever. <laughs> and it's like, and so the king said, yeah, 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 that's a, you're, you've got a good point there. So then what does he do? He exiles her. He sends her away, so she's never to come in my presence ever again. Which is problematic for a variety of reasons, but it's also odd because, like, these were violent people, okay? You you didn't tell the king no. You got put to death for telling the king no. Vashti was a brutal woman herself. She had a woman brutally mutilated who she heard a rumor may have had an affair with her husband. Like, what's going on? Why are they doing this? 
And then what takes place in chapter 2, verse 1, is Xerxes calms down. And it says, when his fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he decreed about her. He feels some sort of remorse. Now, he's the king. He can overturn his own rules. But he doesn't. His staff look at him and say, you're sad, so let's go get you a new wife. So that sounds like a good idea. It does? Your wife is somewhere in your kingdom. Maybe she's just in the other room. Like, what? why are you doing this? Well, we know what's taking place. Unfortunately, it's not clear why it's happening. There's a friend of mine I was having lunch with um, in Louisville, uh, at Chick-fil-A over by the malls on Shelbyville Road. And we were talking about, you know, some of the things, catching up, finding out what's going on in life. And he's a brilliant guy, super smart guy, penetrating logic. Um, and to top it off, like, not only is he smarter than me, he's more humble than I am, which, you know, makes it hard to sit with people like that, you know. <laughs> it's like I can accept the fact that he's smarter than me if he's just, you know, arrogant or something like that. <laughs> um, but super humble guy, super intelligent guy, enjoy to be around in a lot of ways. And um, he was talking about one of the things it is about smart people is they eventually get put in a situation they can't figure out. And he was talking about his wife recently, or at that time, had recently had a child, and she had a muscular disease. And she was experiencing these flu-like symptoms which was different than what she had experienced before with her muscular condition. And he was telling me what was going on. And he was talk talking to me about the medical staff and what they were trying to figure out. And what he was saying was is that essentially nobody knew why it was happening. They knew what was happening, just didn't know why it was taking place. And it was making their life that much harder. It was creating that much more stress. Because they knew the what, but not the why. There's something about God's world, like my friend was experiencing, and God's word, that there's going to be times in your life where the what is very clear and the why is not. Like, this isn't, this book is not the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount tells us why things take place. The Sermon on the Mount opens up the heart and says, do you know why it is that people commit adultery? Well, it's because of lust. Look at the heart. Do you know why it is that people commit murder? Well, look at the heart. It's anger. Do you know why? And God, thanks be to God, he tells us that kind of stuff. And you know what? He also tells us these kind of things. Where we get the facts, and we get the what, and we get told what, or we find out what is going on, and we don't know why it's going on. And the reality is, is that's going to be true most likely in our lives at some point in time. You will be, it will be clear what is going on. It may be clear that you, you, you know what's going on whenever your, your father left your mother. It might be clear that your baby has been diagnosed with a disease. It might be clear that your spouse has passed away. It might be clear that you are trying to find work and you can't find it. It might be clear that all kinds of things are going on. You know the what is going on, but you do not know the why that it is going on. And the reality is, is there is something about 
the workings of God to where there may be times and seasons in your life where the what is very clear and the why is not revealed in that moment or maybe in two weeks or maybe in three years or maybe ever. Let me ask you this question. If you can't answer the why question, what do you do? Where do you turn in your life when you don't know why something is taking place? What do you do? How does it make you feel? How do you respond when you don't know the answer to the question, why is this happening to me? You might say, well, we could just ask. I mean, we can just ask that question. Absolutely. And maybe you would say, well, I understand why you're making such a big deal about this, Travis. Like, if you don't know why somebody's doing something, then why don't you just ask them why they're doing it? But the problem with that is, you can do that. You could ask somebody, let's say you're in relational conflict, and you can ask them, why do you always hurt me? Why do you always say these things? And it is possible that, that they will bring great clarity. But you know what? It, people are notoriously bad self-reporters. Like, People know the polite things to say, and so you can't always assume. So, you know, there's people, will, people will leave a church at times, and they'll say, well, you know, we left the church because our family was going to another church, and then we wanted to go be with them. And that statement is true, but the reality is there were five reasons why they left the church, and that was, you know, reason number five. You see what I'm saying? So you, you could just ask the question, but the reality is, is you and I are limited in what we know about the motivations of other people. And for that matter, we're limited in the, our own motivations because maybe we don't ask the question why is because we don't want to know why. Maybe it's scary. Maybe you could look at the past and say, well, if you want to know why people do things, look at the past. Look at the way they were raised. That does provide insight, Absolutely. Problem of it is, is when you try to explain people's motivations merely by the past, you fall into a trap that Adam did. God said to Adam, hey, did you eat that fruit? And Adam, it was a yes or a no question, and Adam tries to answer it by the past. Well, the woman you gave me, let's talk about the past here, God. She caused me to sin. You can't always look to the past. Well, maybe you need to look to the present, right? Right? Just look at the here, right here, right now. The reason why I'm struggling, the reason why I'm hateful is because I'm sick and I'm tired and I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Possibility, by all means. Our current experiences affect what we do or don't do. I'm, I'm fully sympathetic to that. Problem of it is, is when you try to explain things merely by the present, you've again fallen into a trap like Adam and Eve did. And Eve saw the food and she saw the food in that moment and it was good for food. And she wanted it, and she took it. She got caught up in the present. You can look to the future to explain what's going on, to explain the motivations of people. Well, if you don't have an aim in your life, then, then you don't have a direction in your life, then, then you're, you're headed for nothing. And so what motivates me right now is I am trying to make my sales goals. What motivates me right now is I'm trying to get through school. What motivates me right now is I'm trying to do this because I've got a goal. It's in the future. Sure, I'm all for that. I'm not opposed to future plans. The problem with that is, is there was this serpent who said to Adam and Eve, you know, you eat that fruit, you will not die, which is a future explanation. You will be like God, which is a future promise. Let us embrace our own limitations on what motivates other people. We don't always know. 
And that can, be, that can feel chaotic at times. But sometimes in life, you have to say, I don't know why people do things, but I know that this is what they're doing. And I choose to trust that God is still good. Second, we're limited in what we know about the godliness of other Christians. So we, we kind of, we've covered a lot, and we haven't even met the main characters of the story yet. Again, Esther has a lot that's going on. There's a lot to it, and we didn't even meet the main characters, but now we will. And so look here with me in verse, verses 5 through 7. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who was carried away into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive of Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up um, because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So who are these people? The gentleman's name is Mordecai. He is of the tribe of Benjamin, which is important for the biblical readers because that means he comes from, a, from essentially royal stock. Um, Saul is the first king of Israel, and he was from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was um, one of the most um, prized sons of Jacob and came from his most prized wife. So he comes from good stock. He lived in the city of Jerusalem. His family lived in the city of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem is the city of God. And it is the place where God's people dwell. And it's the place where God's people worship. And it's the place where God's name exists according to Psalm 48 and all kinds of other places. So this guy, is, he is from a good family. Um, his, uh, they're from a good, a good town. And he has some sort of nobility. He sees his cousin, and she doesn't have parents anymore. Her parents had died, and he took her, he adopts her, and he raises her as if she is his own daughter. Her name is the book's namesake, Esther. So he's a noble man, but it's partly problematic, Mordecai, because at this time in God's people's lives. They had been exiled. It mentions this here. They had been exiled because of their sins. And you can read about that at the end of 2 Kings, or you can read about it in Jeremiah or in the book of Ezekiel. They had been exiled and they'd been taken from the land because of their sins. But what had happened was, is God was making promises through these prophets saying, God is going to bring us back to the land. The time's going to come. He's going to turn the hearts of kings and we can go back to the land and we can rebuild the temple and we can go back and worship God in our place because that's what God says to do in the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses taught us, we go back to the land of Israel and we worship God there. And Xerxes, for all his drunkenness and problematic behavior, said to the Jewish people, he had fulfilled the plans of God, and he said, you can go back if you want to go back. You don't have to serve my gods. You can go and worship the Lord. But Mordecai doesn't go. How come? 
What's the reason? Is there compromise? Like his name is Mordecai. It's not, it's not like Isaiah, which means the Lord saves. It's not like Daniel, which means the Lord is judge. His name's Mordecai. It's, he's named after a Babylonian god Marduk, who they carried on their shoulders. Is there compromise that's taking place? Again, those are questions of motives. And the text doesn't tell us. So what about Esther? What is her relationship like to Mordecai? Well, we know that she's loyal to Mordecai. He does adopt her. That's something noble. And she is loyal to him. If you look here with me in verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. So Mordecai raises her and he says to her, let's keep our Jewishness under wraps. Don't let anybody know. Again, problematic. Because here's one of the things that would be clear that if you're Jewish is, is that whenever somebody sits down, sits down food, if they sit down ham or lobster or whatever, you don't eat that. So were they compromising themselves on the food laws and things like that? We don't know. We just know that Mordecai instructs her to scale back and to not let people know that she was Jewish. And she, she listened and she obeyed. What do we know about them? Well, this is what we know. What is it that... What else do we know? Well, we know that they're not like a lot of the other people who lived in foreign lands in the Bible. Like this isn't, these people aren't Daniel. Daniel lived in a foreign land. Xerxes' father, Darius, had him thrown into a lion's den because Daniel wouldn't stop praying. And God delivered him. These people aren't like Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who said to the most powerful and murderous man in the world, I'm not bowing down to your idol. They said, fine, we'll throw you into the fire. And they said, fine, God will save us or we'll die and go be with God, but we don't care. We're not bowing down to your idol. Like They're not like Moses, who says, let my people go to Pharaoh. They're not like Joseph, who, uh, who is persecuted for his sexual integrity. And yet... They're the main characters. They're the main people of the story. And God has a plan for their life. We have to embrace the limitations of, of the godliness of other Christians. Not every Christian is a spiritual giant. You know, think about yourself. Not every day is, is your equivalent of the lion's den, right? Right? Plenty of days are marked by compromise. Like We have to embrace the limitations, one, of our own godliness, because we're going to have days to where it's, you know, everything's firing on all cylinders, and it's, it's as if the Lord is, is tangibly present each and every moment of the day, and then we're going to have other days where, where you get to the end of it, if not to the end of the week, and said, I haven't even thought about God at all. And you know what? We also have to embrace the limitations of other Christians. I want to ask you, when Christians don't meet your expectations, what do you do? 
How do you want Christians to act? What do you want Christians to say? If you want Christians to be bold and they are fearful, you will, you're going to get discouraged. If you want Christians to be passionate and they're indifferent, you're going to get discouraged. If you want Christians to be loving and they're hateful, you're going to get discouraged. This couple, it's the obvious. They're not necessarily going to meet all of our expectations. And the reality is, is that's okay. God in his wisdom has chosen to give us these people as holy and as unholy as they are for this moment at this time. And the reality is, is all the Christians that we have expectations on are as, as holy and as unholy as God wants them in that very moment. And then third, we need to embrace the limits of our knowledge of the plans of God. So, there's a lot of talk about a lot of people who we don't know a lot about, which is mildly unhelpful. So what about God? What, is this, what do these passages say about God and what He's doing? Well, chapter 1 never mentions Him. No mentions of the name of God, which there was, there was a lot of drinking, not a lot of praying, right? So you find some praying, that'll at least make you feel a little bit better, right? There's no praying, no reading the Bible. What about chapter 2? Is there any praying in chapter 2? Well, there's not actually any praying in chapter 2. No reading the Bible, no missions trips, no helping the poor. No, no mention of God there either. His name never shows up. So where is he? Well, wherever he is, he's not taking center stage. So is he anywhere? Well, there's a hint. Chapter 2, verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. So Esther goes to the king and um, she wins favor. Now what's significant about that? Well, that word favor is used, it's used multiple times in the Bible. And it's always used in connection to God. In Nehemiah 1, verse 11, it says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Granting favor in the presence of this man. This word is used of God's steadfast and unchanging love. It is a gift of God. It is used throughout the Psalms where it says that the steadfast love of the Lord, 
could be translated, the favor of the Lord endures forever. It is, it is a word that is used of Nehemiah, where, or excuse me, of Jeremiah, where it says that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. So God never says that he's done with his people. God's love goes on and on for, forever. And at times, if you search for God, he may not be on the center stage, but there is a hint. Even in the chaotic mess uh, of, of this book, I mean, again, his favor is being granted to Esther, who is on her way to get married to a king who sobered up and felt bad because he exiled his wife. And yet, in the midst of all that mess, there's God. And the reality is, is life may seem chaotic and hard at times. And know this, God is God. And he doesn't have to take center stage. If he wants to take center stage in your pain and in your life and in your challenges, he will take center stage. If God wants to shout to you, he will shout to you. And if God wants to whisper to you, he will whisper to you. And if God just wants to hint that he was there, you might catch the hint in that moment. And you might not catch the hint for another 30 years. But the reality is, is if you embrace by faith that there is a God and he is present, and he is good, and that he is working his plans, whether you can see them or hear them or not. Even the chaotic times will be evidence of the Lord's favor. I mean, that's, that's in the Word, and that's evident in the Lord's Supper. You see, because on a, on a chaotic and problematic night, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body broken for you. Do you think that made sense to them in the moment? The one true living son of God is going to be broken? Yes. For you. And in the same way, he took a cup of wine. And he says, this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. The death of Christ reveals the problematic and chaotic times reveal a God whose foundation is secure and he is worthy of our trust. If you are a Christian, I invite you to come forward. After I get done praying and the musicians begin playing, there'll be stations throughout the auditorium and there will be gluten-free elements to my left and to your right. Our practice is to tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in juice or wine, which one ever one your conscience permits. The wine is marked by a piece of twine. Come forward. But if you're not a Christian, I ask you to please not participate in this aspect of our service, but please believe in a God who is able to bring stability in the midst of your chaos. Let's pray together.